0: As I was closing up for the night, I thought about all the movies that had been discussed in the spoiler room. That was when the temperature in the room changed. I went to the thermostat and it said it was 52 degrees KB. Suddenly I found myself in a maze of movie posters. No matter what direction I went, each path led me back to one actor, Kevin Bacon. That was when it was clear what I had to do. When I snapped out of it, I added bacon to the menu. 2020 was going to be an interesting year in the spoiler room. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another edition of The Spoiler Room. So glad you could join us venturing down the stairs and pulling up a chair. It is 52 degrees KB here in The Spoiler Room, all of 2020. Yes, that's right. That is the temperature here as we play a modified version of 6 degrees to Kevin Bacon. And tonight's film has a connection to a film that stars Kevin Bacon. Last week, we looked at Quicksilver that starred Kevin Bacon, as well as many other folks, including Jamie Gertz. Now, Jamie Gertz is in tonight's film, which is less than zero from 1987 which also stars Andrew McCarthy, Robert Downey Jr and James Spader. And joining me tonight to talk about this rather dark and deep look at the horrors of drug abuse and drug addiction is none other than Mark the Movie Man. How you doing tonight Mark the Movie Man? I'm doing well, Mark. Thank you for having me in the spoiler room. So glad you could be here. Yes, that's right, folks. This is our first solo episode. Not sure how it's going to go. Uh, I hope you still find it interesting, and we're going to give it the old college try. Speaking of college, that relates to uh, tonight's film, Less Than Zero, from 1987, where we get a college freshman played by Andrew McCarthy. His name is Clay, and he returns from college to L.A. for the holidays at the request of his ex-girlfriend, who is played by Jamie Gertz. The reason she wanted Clay there is because, well, Clay's former best friend has an out-of-control drug habit that keeps getting worse. His friend is Julian, and he's played by Robert Downey Jr. Now, Julian is in for some heavy cash with a drug dealer named Rip, played by James Spader. And we see how Clay deals with the fact that his friend has this massive drug addiction. His girlfriend, or ex-girlfriend, who he still carries a candle for four has a somewhat of a drug problem and the problem that he has is the moral dilemma of whether or not he should still help these people who were once his deep down friends or if he should just head back to college and say yeah go bury yourself in drugs folks I'm done as you can imagine folks that's not how it would go because it would be a very short film yes we get a scene opening in less than zero where we get all the happy high school graduates you know Andrew McC- Carthy's character, Clay, Blair, and Julian are all happy. They have dreams. They graduated. Their parents are happy for them. Yeah, Julian has a possible deal to become a record producer and start his own record company thanks to his dad. Clay's going off to college, and uh, Blair uh, is going off to college, too, and he thinks she's going with him. And, well... That's what we're introduced to, a rather happy and lively scene. We find out, uh, jump ahead six months later, that uh, things can go to hell in a handbasket, Very, very quickly. Now, what's interesting about the high school scene before we move on is, if you're not familiar with Less Than Zero, this is a dark film that is about drug addiction. And it has some very popular actors. And one of the test screenings that they had for this rated R film for ages between 15 and 24-year-olds revealed that no one liked Robert Downey Jr.'s character. So they added this high school scene at the beginning of the film to uh, make him more appealing. Because as you'll find out as we go along in this film, there's a reason why that age range didn't quite like Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Julian. Now, what I find most interesting about this trivia tidbit is... It's rated R, and they polled ages 15 to 24. So, hey, folks, it was the 80s. There were a lot of us folks, uh, kids watching films we shouldn't have at the age we were. But back to less than zero. Six months later, after high school graduation, we find out that there's been, uh, well, uh, some trouble between our trio of friends, namely that... Clay came back from a Thanksgiving break to find that his friend Julian was sleeping with his girlfriend on and off, kind of long-distance relationship girlfriend, Blair. Yes, he caught them in bed together, and that kind of puts a damper on any of his relationships. But when Blair calls him up just before Christmas break, he does decide to come back because he still carries that torch for her, you know? it's It's one of those odd things. I mean, it sounds odd, and some of the other choices that the characters make in this film as it goes along, you, you know, you got to realize that they're still young. It's even though they've known each other for 10 years, here they are only in their early 20s. Early 20s, and the decisions they make a lot might have a lot of people scratching their head or rolling their eyes, but you got to realize these are very young folks still thinking uh, they own the world. So Clay makes it back, and we come to find out that, you know, he's very rich. All these people are very rich. Kind of a common thing in the 80s was portraying the rich and famous and those who had a lot, but that there was a price that was ended up paying for being that successful. Folks, class warfare isn't something that was made in the last 10 years. This has been going on for decades, and if you watch any 80s film, you will notice that one of the representations of The rich and famous is Hollywood, California, L.A., that lifestyle, and that's what we're playing with in here in that realm, but we're finding it, it is not all unicorns and sparkly and caviar, that there's an underbelly to it, and that is really dug deep to in here with Clay, who meets up with Blair at a party where, uh, this party scene, by the way, if you maybe look in the background, you might actually catch Brad Pitt, who did a short cameo for, I guess, 38 bucks. But, I digress. Clay shows back up at this party, and man, this this scene with the party, he, we get introduced with pretty much all the characters and, and kind of catch up on what they've been doing for the last six months since we first saw them at the high school graduation party scenes. And let me tell you, again, things go dark quick, but what's also interesting in this uh, party scene is there's a lot of number of things uh, that will probably trigger uh, a twenty twenty pair of eyes nowadays. Namely, with Clay, who walks in and he He's the popular guy, you know, he's the man, you could tell he that's where he was in high school, and here he is at this party, catching up with a bunch of friends and stuff, I mean, he has a random girl just come up and deep kiss him, he makes a comment to these other girls who, that they have TVs between their legs, because... They actually do because this party is like uh, something that MTV threw up. This whole place is just filled with, at the time, CRT videos that show live feeds of people in the club as well as music videos. And it's just, it is so 80s. And yes, this whole entire film definitely is rooted in the 80s with all of the look and the art deco and everything going on. And this club definitely is a representation of uh, that excessiveness in the 80s and the wild styles that you saw, especially in those uh, L.A. and and richer neighborhoods, if you will. So we have this guy, Clay, who's supposed to be our hero, who is, you know, going through. He uh, just randomly smacks a girl on her butt, uh, you know, and I mean, just just a number of these things that would trigger people, you know, and. We get to see Rip, who's played by James Spader. He's the big baddie in this film. He's the drug dealer. Everybody knows he's a drug dealer, though they won't come right out and say it to his face. Well, not at first. And old Rip, you know, he meets up with Clay first. And, uh, yeah, he slides him a little dime bag of the cocaine, though Clay now has changed his ways, he says, and no longer parties hard like that, because he's in college, and college is a lot harder than he thought it was, at least that's what he tells us later, so he meets up with Blair at this party, who, this is a weird scene, because he meets Blair, he, she cheated on him, he still holds a candle for her, and he comes up, and he starts making out with her, and I'm like, oh, okay, I guess all is forgiven already, but then there's dialogue about, you know, how you look good and, and and how she looks good, and there's some casual talk, but he was like, oh you know, deeply kissing her, and then I'm like, okay, but then in the next minute, uh, they're kind of cold to each other as she talks about Julian, who's in real trouble, as she puts it, and she, you know... Uh, just warning him that he's really in a bad way, because Julian not only is in deep with this drug dealer, but also in deep with the drugs, as we later meet uh, Julian, who is really, uh, he's high at the party, not too high yet, as he uh, once again catches up with his ex-friend Clay, and... Again, another odd reaction and reception between these two I mean here Clay saw Blair, he was on her like you know white on her ice he's kissing on her and that and then and then it's like, oh yeah, well, you know it's all kind of forgiven, well, maybe not, but not too forgiven with his buddy Julian as they have this rather cold Uh, reunion meeting you know Julian is uh, played excellently by Robert Downey Jr. He he said in a book later though that this film was kind of the ghost of Christmas future because here he's playing a guy who is uh, suffering from drug addiction which he did have a bit of a problem with drugs at the time the film was made but definitely fell harder years later that we know so it was almost prophetic in its way of his portrayal of Julian uh, the cocaine and drug addict and we see You know, just this odd relationship. And it carries through for a lot of the film between these three. You know, this Clay trying to figure out, does he still want to be with Blair? Can he still be friends with Julian? Which... He must, because after the party later on, we get the scene, bright, sunny day, and Clay shows up and finds Julian on a bench because Julian's been kicked out by his parents because, well, uh, he's got his drug addiction. And there's an interesting scene here because it's done in a park, and there's a kid on a swing. And we have here Clay and Julian kind of reminiscing a little bit about their friendship. And then I I thought it's cool, and you know... Maybe I make mountains out of molehills. I know I'm generous with films, but having the kid in the swing in there representing the innocence of childhood in that as they're reminiscing about. You know their their f- more fun days when they were younger, and f- how things weren't quite so uh intense and and you know uh it's just an interesting setting that they have, and I don't think it was uh just random that they had the kid in there because the subject matter you know they're trying to remember that innocence, and there you have that representation of innocence which. By now has been lost completely, I mean again, six months uh, so uh yeah, Julian is in a rough way, and we get mostly a lot of back and forth between them, Clay trying to catch up with Blair, who also does cocaine, but she's not doing cocaine nearly as heavy as uh you know as Julian is, which I thought it was interesting. you've got kind of three representations here with these three individuals you've got. Clay, who's the guy who's kind of gotten out of the wildlife. He's trying to go the straight and narrow path. He's, he doesn't do drugs. In fact, throughout this uh, whole film, I don't think he actually does do any cocaine anymore. Uh, you know, it, 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 he, he does still drink. He has a drink, but... Uh, But I don't remember. No, I don't think he actually does any coke anymore, though it is alluded that he did at one time. And then you have Blair, who's kind of in between. She is doing cocaine recreationally and to deal with high stress situations, but she isn't doing it as heavily as Julian, who, who Man, this guy just cannot stop. Whether or not he's, uh, you know, doing a lines or more, his choice was free basing it, which was really the hardcore way to go with cocaine usage. And seeing him actually do it on screen, yeah, this might give some people old Iron Man different perception of the individual. He plays this so well, though. I mean, you, the, the director, uh, Marek uh, Canaveska was picked because he had a reputation of taking characters who should be very unlikable and unsympathetic to the audience and making them likable, and he does that here, and I don't know how he does it, but he does. I mean, these are people—I mean, the first 15 minutes of this film shows the representation of 80s excess, and these people are representations of people you— didn't have sympathy for, especially back then, because they had it all, and so their situation, you know, is the self-made one, and so it's kind of tough for you to feel sympathetic usually, but he does it in here. Julian, as he goes along and just goes further and further and deeper into his drug addiction and deeper in with the Rip character, uh, you feel bad for him, even though you know this was kind of his, this was his own doing. At the same time, you're just like, man i you your heart reaches out to him you know and uh, clay you, you don't blame him either for his reaction i mean he's he's supposedly the supposed to be the good guy of this you know and, and of course his feelings for blair eventually he ends up taking blair back which pushes julian further into the drug rabbit hole but at the same time julian with you know that comes some depression and he really is like, yeah, you two deserve each other. You know, he figured that's the way it was going to go. And so the dynamic between these three is just... An interesting representation of three different stages of people in this lifestyle. Not saying that's the only stages, but for back then, that's what they were using, I think, these characters for as the various levels of drug use. <laughs> so, yeah. And so as we move along, there's a back and forth between, you know, uh, Clay wanting to help Julian and Clay wanting to just Julian bury himself and his love for Blair. And you know he sees blair's uh, still has this close friendship with julian i i don't think there is any romantic level anymore in fact at one point uh, both julian and blair say they ended up hooking up because they were just there for each other, kind of throwing the guilt on Clay for leaving to improve himself, which I thought was an interesting uh, point that they were trying to make. But at the same time, he's like, "Yeah, well, you know, I'm kind of the nice guy, and I still really like Blair. So, okay, you know. So his his love for Blair and seeing how she still cared, even friendship, close friendship-wise with Julian, really pushes... Uh, Clay's uh, ego kind of to the side a bit until, you know, it comes true that, you know, he remembers that friendship, and deep down, he is still friends with Julian, and that's why he tries to help Julian, even though Julian doesn't want to help himself, and that is evident as he uh, constantly clashes with Rip. Yes, Rip, James Spader, playing probably the, uh, he plays this kind of scary individual, not as scary as you might think for a drug dealer, at least for most of the film, but it is James Spader, and he does creepy very well, and he does creepy here with Rip. So, as the film goes along, he is more and more despicable. But at the same time, he's not your quite cliche. 80s villain. He does play it kind of cool, calm, and collective uh, though there is a point where he does get into a brawl with Clay and Blair and that's an interesting one. It's a kind of a brutal fight and I, I liked how it was choreographed and how it played out. This was at near the very end where Clay and Blair are searching for Julian who is on Christmas night gone missing when we find out, well, not exactly gone missing so much as it that uh yeah Julian's uh, being pimped out still by rip. So there's that fight there and with the Blair and Clay searching for Julian scenes we get a kind of vision into the 80s subculture as they visit various clubs around LA and we see the various different types of subculture that you had in the 80s. So I thought that was another very interesting window into the time period, seeing the various different styles and clubs there were as these two go deeper and deeper into the uh, club scene and find the seedier and seedier woods as they try to track down their friend. Once they do track down their friend, they really try to keep him from rip. And this is also where Blair has kind of a wake up call during this final, uh, 15 minutes of the film because they're hanging with some friends at a very posh party and Clay has rescued Julian from a a hotel room where uh, Julian's being pimped out and so when he arrives uh, Blair is with some of her friends her rich friends who do cocaine and yeah one of them starts having a nosebleed now earlier in the film Clay kind of called Blair out on her drug use and said oh you know hiding it with nosebleeds and so that kind of references back to that it calls and wake up her to what she is doing to herself and we see a scene where she dumps the cocaine down the sink and two people are in there going what are you doing that's such a waste oh my god so you know so you got that little message there of how they still have that peer pressure in the high society to use the drugs when uh, they don't really want to anymore and yeah, it's an interesting development with Blair. We don't get too much development with her, but we do get this moment, which was nice, to see uh, where the, she's changing her character. Though through most of the film, she doesn't seem to change too much as she flips between, you, you know, really loving Clay and then having her own problems and Clay rejecting her and all that Um uh, you know, it, it the way she was written wasn't the most solid, but we are talking the '80s here, where most of your female characters aren't. Uh, but at least she gets this character moment of dropping her own drug habit. You would think after seeing Julian do what he's done for so long, but she was in denial. In fact, she even drops the cliche line at one point during the film, going, "I can stop at any time." and yeah, that is deliberately put in there because that is one of those signs that you always hear about addicts saying, I could stop at any time when they can't. So they do give her that bit of arc, but for the most part, Blair is kind of there, unfortunately, though Jamie Gertz makes the best of it. This is really Robert Downey Jr.'s film, though. Even though you have Andrew McCarthy, Jamie Gertz, James Spader in here, It's Robert Downey Jr. who really shines as the Julian character. And you feel such a connection to him that at the end of the film, it's going to end. Yes, this is the spoiler room, folks. It's going to end as you might expect. Here, his friends have gone out on a limb. They went to rescue him, bar none, showing that common 80s theme, that friendship will conquer all, just like Glove will conquer all. And, well, unfortunately, it can't conquer health issues caused by massive drug use. And we get a sad moment to where Julian does die in the car with them as they're trying to escape LA and what they did to Rip in his guys. Then we move later to a small funeral scene where Clay remembers a uh, moment when Julian lost his mom when he was five, kind of uh, dropping this tidbit at the end of the film to give you, I think, maybe a little spark of where Julian's issues may have came from i'm not quite sure but it is this reminiscent moment that uh, clay has with blair on a park bench wearing shades as the sunsets talking about remembering julian you know and the type of person he was and so uh, you get this moment in here and then the the high school scene you know picture photo at the very end of the three of them being all happy and Yeah, you knew that's where it was going with this film. It had to because the message overall, drugs bad. Drugs really, really bad. And yes, folks, excessiveness represented throughout this film, and it was the villain of the 80s and here, I think kind of the gist they were showing for was that, you know, people who have it all end up pushing it too far and end up having nothing at the end. Maybe I'm making too much of that as well, but that's kind of the feeling I got with this, was that here we have three individuals who did have it all. One of them really put it down his nose and ended up getting into trouble just like anybody would who has a drug addiction. Whether or not they're from Beverly Hills or they're from, you know, uh, the middle class sections or even the lower class areas of town, they all end up having the same issues. And maybe that's where they were kind of leading to this. But for the most part, it's just showing you how drug addiction can ruin not only your life, but the life around you and how it can lead to your inevitable death if you won't change. And, And yeah, so it's a dark ending to the film it's overall this film is really you know not an uplifting movie at any point it doesn't let you breathe and get a happy moment i mean even when You have Clay and Blair getting back together. You're like, really? After all that's happened and what's going on, you two are hooking back up already? But again, as I mentioned before, they are young and and young folks make, you know, different decisions. (laughs) So uh, I remember watching this when I was younger and granted, I probably didn't understand a huge amount of what was going on because I would have only been about 12 at the time, but I caught enough of it. And for me, I watched it, uh, namely, because of the people involved with it, and uh, yeah, being a uh, adolescent teen, I watched it for Jamie Gertz. I I won't lie, <laughs> but I did find it interesting watching it again. Just how effective the music was in this movie. Uh, you know, I I I have the soundtrack. I love the soundtrack. It's got a great movie soundtrack. Uh, both vocals and the orchestral one isn't, eh, not too inspired. Thomas Newman did it, who's a very talented uh composer, but uh, he only made, I think, like one or two tracks that they reuse throughout the film, but you definitely have licensed music in here, and for me, my favorite song off the soundtrack would be none other than the Bangles cover of Hazy Shade of Winter, uh, originally written by Simon and Garfunkel. The Bangles version, of course, is more a uh, rock out type of feel to it but it is also still very fitting for this movie and the wild lifestyle that it portrayed now the other musical tracks that we have in here as well just just nail the emotions of the scenes and are very fitting, and I love when film directors take deliberate action with their choices in music cues, especially when using licensed music. We usually associate it with Quentin Tarantino, but here we have a director who is also taking effective use of music of the time and applying it to the scenes, and yeah, I I just love the soundtrack to it and can't recommend it enough. Even if you don't quite care for 80s music, it is one of those where you really should listen to it because it's got kind of the greatest hits of the time. So uh, there you have it, folks. My ramblings on Less Than Zero. It's a solid film for sure. Just one you better be in the right mindset to see. You know, it's it gives you a window into that time period and... Yeah, it shows you the consequences of excess, which we started seeing more and more in the films of of that time period as the 80s waned to and the 90s started moving in. You started to see more and more films showing consequences of the early lifestyles. So, uh, yeah, it's always great to see films reflecting the times and the culture. And when you watch older films like this, especially during a time when you grow up, you really get to see it. And seeing it through a different pair of eyes. Yeah, there are a lot of things in here that I'm sure people will have a problem with of how they are portrayed but at the same time the message down deep in this film about the drug addiction and the effects it has on people and the people around them still could be applied to today so there you have it folks thank you for listening to our solo episode of the spoiler room I'm not sure how informative it was but I thank you for sticking with it really check out our other episodes that we got coming up. we got some great stuff here. The crew will be back next week when we talk Pretty in Pink. We're going to have a new crew member in the Spoiler Room, in fact, in the form of Ian Simmons, film critic from Chicago. I've been on his podcast a number of times and he's going to venture into the Spoiler Room with Tanya Atomic to talk about Pretty in Pink. And how does that link to this film? Well, most of you probably are already aware how it does, but we won't reveal that till next time. So, thank you so much and now we'll just say goodnight everyone. So hard to please. Look around, leaves are brown and the sky is a hazy shade of winter. In the Salvation Army van, down by the riverside, is bound to be a better ride than what you got planned. Carry you.